fundamental issue now before our people in these days. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control them? I believe they are. My opponents do not. of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. The Red Pill. Listen to the right take. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Welcome, one and all, to episode number 71 here of The Right Take. I am Eric Lendrum, here with my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff. And of course, what else could we possibly start this episode off with than the breaking news from over the week? The horrible, horrible news, the actually earth-shattering in American politics. Jacob, I'm sure you heard about this. This was the the... Comment from Joe Biden heard around the world. We've all heard him say really stupid things, of course. Talk about Harry is curly hair legs and letting little kids touch his legs in the pool, I guess, for some reason. We've heard him talk about corn pop and all these other things. We've heard him talk about, you know, we need to guarantee all Americans bad how about bad cap care. You know, we've heard all these things. Telling a man in a wheelchair to stand up, you know, there, there's there's a, a lot of it really is a library. People joke about like there being a whole library of Trump's greatest tweets. There could easily be just as big of a library on Biden's gaffes, which you could attribute to just him being stupid. You could attribute it to Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever he has. But this was a big one. This he made he made this announcement to the world in a speech in Massachusetts off the window. That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. And why can't, for the longest time, Delaware had the highest cancer rate in the nation? There it is, folks. The 46th president of the United States, allegedly, he has cancer. That is just, that's devastating. I just, I I don't know what to think. I mean, how much longer is he going to last, Jacob? He's almost 80 years old, I think. He's, I We've can't. reached the point where nobody really pays any attention to anything that Joe Biden says, because I think even his supporters realize that he's not president. He's not running the country. So He's definitely not in charge. He could yet. say... Yeah, he could say that he was sleepwalking yesterday and he slapped his wife and everyone would just kind of yeah. let out a collective yawn. It's like, okay, all right. He could Maybe sleep. you should go back to bed, old man. Yeah, he could say that he's sleeping with Katy Perry and nobody would bat an eye. Like, it's just, it doesn't matter anymore. Nothing matters. So, obviously, that's a joke, guys. That's just him. That's just him being senile. We know, he, we now know, of course, a day later, it was confirmed, he does have a medical condition that starts with the letter C, but it's not cancer. He's got COVID. The president who has got like, uh, 
I think, seven vaccines now and 26 booster shots, probably, give or take. I don't know. He still caught COVID, which, of course, further proves that vaccines don't work, but I digress. He caught COVID and now is going to go into isolation for, I think, two weeks. I think that's the the period is 14 days. So he's going to still run the country from isolation, I guess. He is undergoing treatment. The New York Post actually reported that his doctor has stopped his heart medication in order to treat COVID, to administer the meds for COVID even though this increases the risk of blood clots. So you got to take into account, of course, again, he's an old man. He's got comorbidities working against him. This, even if it's a mild case of COVID, you know, whatever it is, it could be really bad. So who knows? Of course, the talk has already arisen that Biden, as a result of this, this, this could be the beginning of the end, that Biden could be forced out now with COVID, you know, whatever illness he has. And of course, who is waiting in the shadows just behind him, who has been waiting for this moment, hoping that she wouldn't have to kill him herself, that she would become president some other means. My former senator, former state attorney general, Kamala Harris. And I think uh, this is the thing. And I have always said this. I have always said I would rather have eight years of senile Joe Biden well into his 90s before I would have one day of Kamala Harris as president. And I think, again, Greg Gutfeld, one of the few good people, quote unquote, left of Fox News, said it very well. Well, I think I speak for all Americas, all Americans, and perhaps the world. President Biden, please get well soon. I mean, really, really get well soon, okay? Don't get sick, please, because I don't want the crazy cackler in charge, okay? I think she was doing cartwheels to work. But um, the thing is, he does look fine. He looks fine. And we know with this stuff, uh, the symptoms are mild in this strain. And remember, you know, thank God, his wife is a doctor, so I think that's important. <laughs> and yes, she, with her uh, PhD in education, is definitely going to cure him. So it's it's cool, guys. It's cool, guys. But <laughs> yeah, so bottom line, the talk has been going on for a while now, of course, with his plummeting approval ratings, which started in August of last year. Let's be honest. It started with Afghanistan almost – that's already been almost a year. I can't believe it. Almost a year ago with the fall of Afghanistan, that was the beginning of the end. That was the moment – that the tables turned on Biden and his disapproval rating rose consistently higher than his approval rating. He's now in like the low 30s on average in his approval. It's getting worse. It's lower than Trump's ever was. His approval ratings right now in the mainstream pollsters, I'm not talking Breitbart polls, in like mainstream pollsters, you know, Civics, uh, Gallup, Harvard-Harris, major pollsters have him, Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac is another big one. They have him down lower now not even halfway through his first term, than Trump was in the aftermath of January 6th. That tells you all you need to know, that even with the media running cover for him and burying, you know, obviously the fact that he's senile, burying the Hunter Biden stuff, all of it, he still is at historically low numbers that no president has seen this early on. You have guys like, you know, of course, Truman, Carter, Nixon, and Bush Jr., who saw really low ratings in like the high 20s by the end of their presidencies after four years or more this no one no president has ever had approval ratings this bad before the midterms of his first term so the talk has been going on for some time now and it is accelerated of course with his you know quote-unquote health issues at this point so the speculation of course arises who could possibly run in 2024 if not biden and of course a lot of people are going to say well obviously the vice president the next in line that's how it's always been uh ever since nixon ran for president in 60 pretty much consistently from 1960 through 2016 uh with i think a couple of exceptions Every there's always been at least one major party nominee who was either an incumbent president seeking reelection or an incumbent vice president looking to take over. That's just that's the standard. It's always been that way. So Biden is basically out. We know we knew he was never going to run for a second term. Is it going to be Kamala, though? Because as I have always said, Kamala is more unpopular than Biden. You you think people hate Biden? They're really not going to like her. She could easily get down to like 20 percent approval rating very easily if she shows Americans just what she's like in charge of the country. So people other than Biden and Kamala, who could it possibly be? I've said before, I believe, on this podcast that I think they were really building up during 2020. They were building up Andrew Cuomo and he they were expecting that Biden would probably lose the election, which, of course, I think he lost legitimately, but that's, again, is a topic for another time. They were building up Cuomo. You know, Fox News and all the other outlets were carrying his daily coronavirus briefings every single day as basically the antithesis to Trump, supposedly. Like, oh, Trump's nowhere to be found. He's showing no leadership on COVID. Cuomo is the president, the shadow president. He's the president America needs. They were building Cuomo up to be the 2024 nominee after two terms of Trump, who's going to come in and clean up Trump's mess. Then, of course, that's not quite what happened. Biden, quote unquote, won. And that gave them free pass to basically say, OK, Trump's not in the White House anymore. We're free to go after some Democrats now. So they aired all of Cuomo's dirty laundry and he's out and he took his whole family down with him. 
So who could it possibly be at this point? Of course, some people say that, uh, I mean, of course, Bernie's not going to run again. He'll be even old. He'll be in his like mid 80s. I think by that point, he knows he's not going to run again. People talk a lot about AOC. I really don't see that happening in 2024. I just, I don't think she'll run yet. I think she'll run for president eventually, but not in 2024. And Jacob, you were the one who actually brought this up right before we started recording. It's something I have been saying for a while, but it didn't occur to me today prior to this episode until you gave me the reminder. So thank you for that, my friend, of the individual who is actually very likely to run for president as a Democrat and very likely to win the nomination. The Batman villain governor himself, my former governor, California's Gavin Newsom. And I call him the Batman villain because Jacob, back me up here. Does he not look like Harvey Dent right before half his face got disfigured and he went insane and turned evil? <laughs> yeah, I've never even thought about that. But I mean, actually, you know, when you think about the inverted morals of this, Silicon Valley kind of stands in opposition to everything that middle America stands for. Mm-hmm. If Silicon Valley were to come up with a superhero and just basically craft the perfect superhero, it would be that guy. Like it, it absolutely would be Gavin Newsom. A hundred percent. His looks, his demeanor, the way he talks, his yep. uh, is basically his uh, moral self-righteousness, everything about him. And Gavin Newsom really has been, I mean, even beyond his stance right now as governor of California, he's cruising to an easy reelection. There's no question about that. He's going to win. He's governor of the largest state in the country, a huge electoral prize, of course, in the general election and certainly the primaries. He, of course, is pretty far left. He's not quite AOC, but he's pretty close. He's closer to an AOC than he is to uh to a Biden, obviously, on green energy and immigration and whatnot. So certainly he would make a lot of that radical base happier than they are with Biden right now and even happier than they are with Kamala, arguably. Um, He is relatively younger. He's in his mid-50s. He's eh, more on the conventionally attractive side, at least by political standards. So he could actually be a pretty solid candidate on paper and probably in practice for the Democratic Party of 2024. But he recently has been making... Big moves that all but scream, I am running for president, and I'm just not announcing it yet. Uh, First off, I saw he did join President Trump's social media alternative platform, Truth Social. He joined and got an account and everything, announcing in his statement that he joined Truth Social to criticize Trump and you know disagree with him publicly on his platform, which no other top Democrat is doing that, of course. They're all just staying away from Truth Social. So Gavin Newsom doing that is a publicity stunt raising his image his profile against or with the base to say i'm standing against donald trump because of course that is still very much the message they go on is just being anti-trump another thing he did this was even bigger presidential you know campaign and waiting flex he started running campaign ads uh, not in california by the way he's running campaign ads yes he's running for re-election it's 2022 he's not running campaign ads in california though because he knows he's gonna win he doesn't need to run a campaign there he is running campaign ads in florida bashing Ron DeSantis and encouraging Floridians to move to California, which, I mean, (laughs) can we just, first off, obviously acknowledge the tone deafness of that. People are leaving California for Florida or Texas. I guess it's one of those two. No one is going to go from Florida to California. But again, he knows that. He's not stupid. He knows they're not doing that. That is a flex to try to get Florida Democrats' attention and get Democrats across the country's attention to show, like, not only am I bashing Trump on his own platform, I'm going after the number two guy, the guy that everyone says is probably going to win if Trump isn't the nominee, is going to be the nominee if Trump doesn't run somehow. So he's basically saying, I'm taking on the Trump Republicans. I'm taking on the whole established conserv- conservatism. I'm taking on everybody on the right all at once i am your superhero i'm your brawler i'm gonna take up every fight i need to take up and it's definitely generating a lot of buzz rightfully so that he basically wants to run for president and if he did choose to run for president assuming biden of course doesn't and kamala gets kneecapped somehow between now and 2024 which is possible which is a possibility uh ask former vice president spiro agnew about that then he would be well positioned certainly with fundraising of course He's in California. He's from the San Francisco machine, which runs California, which also means he is closely connected to Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He is connected to Senator Dianne Feinstein and the massive money machine that they have at their disposal. Raising money for this guy would be a walk in the park. He could do it in his sleep. He would raise millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions in the primaries before he even gets to the general. He would very much, I think, be the candidate to beat. He's, again, younger, dynamic. He's very much built this firebrand reputation for himself. If you go to the Wikipedia page right now for the 2024 election and you look at, they have this cute little list of, like, potential candidates if Joe Biden doesn't run. And the list is just pathetic. Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut. Uh, 
hang on, I think I hear crickets in the background. Oh, no, no, that's just me for comedic effect. Uh, Governor Roy Cooper of North Carolina. Um, no one even really knows who that is. Oh, maybe Amy Klobuchar might come back. You know, if she'll, she'll come back and she'll throw a stapler at Gavin Newsom on the debate stage. That'll win her the nomination easily. <laughs> None of these people are serious. None of these people are serious candidates in terms of the infrastructure and the actions they have taken to run for president, except Gavin Newsom. Now, with that being said, and I do want your input on this, Jacob, is he an ideal candidate to win the general election? I don't know. I mean, I think he's got a better shot than most of these other losers on these lists. But I don't think he's a shoe-in necessarily for president. Again, it depends who he's running against. If he's running against Trump, I could see Trump pretty handily beating him. I could also see it being close. If he's running against DeSantis, well, that's a matchup that Newsom is kind of crafting for himself by going after him in his own home state. It would be the ultimate clash of two Americas we have going right now. You have very much DeSantis representing the Republican side, not counting Donald Trump. I'm talking about as far as governors go. You have DeSantis as the ultimate Republican governor and Gavin Newsom very much building himself up as the ultimate Democrat governor, which, again, that's what Andrew Cuomo was before he sank his own ship. So I personally, I would be wary of him in the primaries. I think he would you know, steamroll the other Democrats in the in the primaries. I don't know if he'd be a shoe in for the general, but I wouldn't count him out yet. Jacob, what say you? Well, for the first thing we need to notice is where the Democratic Party is selecting its leaders. Used to, the Democratic Party would typically try to go to swing states and try to pull leaders from there. Amy Klobuchar is really the only middle American Democrat out of the whole bunch. She was really the only serious contender that was from middle America in 2020. She's the only one that they're bringing, whose name they're bringing up now for a potential 2024 run. And so if you notice, like who leads all the committees, like all the committees that are investigating Trump, on, in the house, they're all from the coast. They're New Yorkers or Californians. Yep. Every now and then they'll grab somebody from like uh, the governor, like Roy Cooper from North Carolina, who is also on the East Coast. So it's very obvious that the Democratic Party has completely given up on trying to pull any talent from the middle portion of the country from flyover country. They have completely gone full steam, full, uh, steam ahead into the strategy of just appealing to its upper middle class college educated white base. And then they just expect to be able to pull all the all the minorities along behind them. As far as Gavin Newsom being able to just completely bulldoze the opposition, it's the it's kind of similar to Kamala Harris in that he would be completely backed by Silicon Valley. He would be, be completely backed by Hollywood. The difference is he actually has some charisma as opposed to Kamala Harris, and he isn't off-putting to women. Kamala Harris was off-putting to women. Women generally don't like one another, especially if – other women are outgoing and attractive and Kamala Harris is considered for her age to be attractive. And so she's also extremely opinionated, extremely naggy. So that type of personality is off putting to women voters. Gavin Newsom, of course, doesn't have any of that going against him. So I do think that Gavin Newsom would have the money and the charisma to be able to completely bulldoze any democratic opposition. If Joe Biden doesn't run, um, so, yeah, even if Kamala Harris were to go for – like if he's running against Kamala Harris, I think he would easily defeat her even though she was VP. Um, yeah. But – oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean looking over this list a little more closely, a couple other names I think are worth mentioning if we're going to turn this into a broader Democrat 2024 thing, which we can go further in depth later on. But just for right now, of course, one other candidate people talk about as someone who, of course, right now is in the Biden administration and would be a top rival to Harris is Mayor Pete. Of course, you know, Pete Buttigieg, who ran for president in 2020 and him dropping out as quickly as he did alongside Klobuchar was a planned, coordinated effort to steal the nomination away from Bernie by having these moderate candidates, you know, moderate, quote unquote, Buttigieg and Klobuchar drop out while Warren stayed in to siphon socialist votes away from Bernie so that Biden can consolidate the moderate establishment vote and win the nomination after South Carolina, which, of course, is what happened. So he was rewarded for that with a position as Secretary of Transportation, which he said he was qualified before because as a kid, he loved trains. <laughs> not kidding. He oh, said man. that. I, in, did, I did not know that. He did say that in one of his hearings. Yes. But the bottom line is being, of course, he also checks a few boxes being gay. You know, he's the first gay cabinet member, first gay, whatever. So but of course, it was rumored that in 2020, Obama himself, among others in the Democratic Party leadership, voiced their concerns behind the scenes that Buttigieg could not win because America's not quite ready for a gay president yet, which I think is true. I think, of course, America should never be ready for a gay president, but that's just me. But that's another one that's that's more of a him versus Kamala Harris thing. Again, if he were to go up against Gavin Newsom, I think he'd get crushed just like he got crushed in the 2020 primaries. One other candidate I see on this list, by the way, that I think is definitely worth mentioning as a strong contender possibly for president, but certainly for VP. She was a top contender for Biden's VP in 2020, is oh, Michigan's own Gretchen Hitler, as I call her. She is, 
first off, she is atrocious. She obviously Democrats have can be proud of her record in Michigan, given that she is, I think, arguably the most tyrannical governor in the entire country. Again, you you saw what she did in her governor's race, Jacob. She had five of her Republican opponents, including the front runner James Craig, former chief of the Detroit Police Department, who was the front runner for the nomination and the general election. Polls showed him beating her in the general election. She had him and four others removed from the ballot for not enough valid signatures, quote unquote. Funny how that only happens to Republicans. And then when the next poll showed, okay, with these five gone, your next uh, top candidate in the, the Republican primary is this uh, businessman named Ryan Kelly. What happens? Whitmer has him arrested for some January 6th charges. Only now, like a year and a half later, he suddenly is identified as being part of January 6th and he gets arrested. So she is, obviously, she's turning Michigan into a very authoritarian state. And certainly Democrats, you know, the deep state certainly would probably love someone of that uh, ruthless ambition, you know, the tyrannical desire that she has. So I could see her being a top contender. But again, against Gavin Newsom and the money machine he would have behind him, the San Francisco Pelosi California machine, I think she would still ultimately lose, but she would be a solid contender for vice president at that point. Well, all of these candidates have one thing in common. They have their base as a bunch of college-educated, middle-aged white people like wine-sipping moms, your suburban dads who believe everything that they're told on the MSM. The The difference is Joe between them and Joe Biden. What set Joe Biden apart from Buttigieg and all the others is Joe Biden had street cred with black people. Despite his gaffes, he was still able to unite black Democrats behind his candidacy. None of these other candidates have that secret mojo to be able to do that. So that would be the difficulty, and that's what Hillary Clinton lacked whenever she ran in 2016. That's right. It wasn't that blacks turned out in large numbers for Trump. It was that in the Midwest, they just stayed home. They just didn't show up. Right. They weren't interested in voting for Hillary Clinton. So I think that's the issue that Gavin Newsom and all the rest of these folks are going to have because – I mean, middle-class suburban America likes these kind of policies because especially in the post-tech age that we're kind of in now, a lot of them have made a lot of money off of uh, technology. So especially in California and Nevada and and states like that, and even in Texas now, since a lot of those firms have relocated to Texas. So that's the thing about America's upper middle class. If you get around these people, they don't see anything wrong with the country right now. They don't see anything wrong with the economy. They think everything is doing well. Gas prices don't affect them because they're making so much money you know, that, that they don't really understand what Republicans and what all these working class people are complaining about. So for that reason, they're going to be – they're going to vote Democrat no matter who's on the ticket. But it's, it's pulling in working class voters, and I just don't see any of these people being able to, to do that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, like you said, they have given up on the working class. They are focusing entirely on the coastal elites and this new multicultural coalition they've built up for themselves. Again, illegal aliens, black voters, you know, those are the people they're trying to get. Again, the whole demographics is destiny thing. They think it's inevitable and it's only a matter of time now before demographics catch up with the, the white base, the white working class base of the Republican Party, and then their fortunes will permanently shift into a supermajority. But of course, as we're seeing in Texas and Florida and a handful of other states, Hispanics are really turning on the Democrats. Certainly, they're turning on Biden for his performance as president, for his handling of the border or lack thereof. They may not be turning to the GOP 100%, but they're certainly turning on the Democrats, which, again, is a net benefit for us. Like black voters mostly staying home in 2016, that was a net benefit for us. We don't have to get them to vote Republican. We just have to you know, make them not want to vote by the candidate being someone who obviously they don't like. So if you know a lot of you know, more uh, naturalized Hispanics here in the United States, if m- m- Hispanics whose families date back generations in this country – See someone like Gavin Newsom, who's just turned his state into a complete sanctuary state for illegals, just flooding over the border, turning San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco into third world crime ridden, disease ridden, drug infested hellholes. They're not going to want to support someone like that. So that could work to our advantage as well. So we will have to wait and see how that unfolds. Again, I'm convinced 100 percent. I think we can agree, Jacob. Biden is not going to be the nominee in 24, right? I, I don't believe so. No. Yeah, I don't I don't, believe I don't so think either. he's going to run in 24. I believe that even if he insists on it, they will sit him down and say, look. You are retiring. You're retiring right now. You're retiring. We are putting you out to pasture metaphorically, but also literally if you don't agree with us. So that's one way or the other. Now, do you think Kamala runs, Jacob? Yes or no? Yes. You think she runs? I think her ego is just too big to let it go. Oh, yeah. She will never let it go. No, I I believe she will run too, but – 
I, I could also see her similarly, again, Agnew style, being forced out in favor of someone. Certainly, again, Newsom, who was governor while she was attorney general, is one person who technically has always outranked her in her career. So she might be persuaded to, you know, let him take the reins, as it were. So we'll see how that plays out. That will be interesting because I'm still convinced Trump is going to be the nominee in 2024. But that's a topic for a completely different episode. We are going to continue this talk of 2024 for our main topic. Now, this is an interesting one. This is uh, this is courtesy of Axios, which we've mentioned on the podcast before. Uh, I described them in one of the episodes I did recently. There was a solo episode, Jacob, while you were uh, on break. I reacted to a story from Axios that uh, basically tried to claim, oh, Democrats finally have their counter to the culture war stuff. And I debunked how that article was nonsense. I said in that, art, in that episode, I referenced how you said that one outlet that more sensible Democrats go – to try to warn the left as a whole when they're, you know, the canary in the coal mine, basically, that something's going wrong, it's Politico. I could certainly see Axios being kind of similar to that, but also one in which they try to, you know, gin up these schemes for the left to try to boost their confidence, but also with a word of caution. I think Axios kind of fits that very well. So one thing about Axios that I like compared to other mainstream publications is that their articles are mercifully short. They're not 50 pages long with a thousand pictures in them like the daily mail or something like that they're of course not behind paywalls like wall street journal or what have you they're usually a page long maybe a page and a half maybe Even the politico longer. runs pretty long sometimes yeah yeah axios like the least they could do is throw in some pictures exactly. <laughs> I mean, politico runs long doesn't even throw any pictures exactly axios is super quick one page page and a half maybe two pages sometimes it's reduced to a few bullet points here and there boom 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 boom, boom. really concise and it makes for quick easy but informative reading this piece from axios uh, is very, very long. I had to guess this is probably around like 40 pages long if you were to turn this into a Word doc. It's basically a novel by Axios' standards, and it's written by one of the top guys there. His name is Jonathan Swan, and the title of it is, quote, A Radical Plan for Trump's Second Term. Ooh, mysterious. So this article, let's go ahead and start off with just this article here, the, the how it begins. Quote, Former President Trump's top allies are preparing to radically reshape the federal government if he is reelected, purging potentially thousands of civil servants and filling career posts with loyalists to him and his America first, in quotes, ideology. People involved in the discussions tell Axios. So, Jacob, you had time to read this article as well, right? Yes, yes. So you want to kind of give us a summary. We can go through and get, read some of the key excerpts that I want to read and some of the excerpts you want to read, but kind of summarize what Mr. Swan is saying here with this piece. He's basically saying Trump's allies are planning on blowing up our democracy, and there's nothing we can do about it. Right. That's, he, like, that's basically the, the, the cliff notes. So it's funny. These, these publications will come out with these long investigative hit pieces on the right, and you read it from – if you read it from a right-wing perspective, you read it and it's like – Oh, okay. That's that's pretty smart. I'm glad somebody on our side is actually using their head now. And on the left, they're just, oh my God, they're going to destroy our country. They're going to destroy our democracy. They're going to take all of our rights away. They're going to put us in concentration camps. And it just shows the the vast gulf that exists between the left and the right in America. And I shouldn't even say the left. It's basically the neoliberal establishment, the people yes. who believe in the post-World War II orders. Like any Republican victory is a threat to their very existence in their minds. So a brief summary. This is basically they're saying – Jonathan Swan is saying that after Trump left the White House – well, first of all, let's go back to right before Trump left the White House. Mm -hmm. There was a plan in the Trump administration. It was called Schedule F. Schedule, what Schedule F was going to be is it was going to be an executive order that was going to classify a lot of mid-level bureaucrats in what we call the deep state, which is the national, the federal bureaucracies. It federal would, cabinet agencies, yeah, basically, the intelligence yeah, yeah. agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would, it would reclassify them as political appointees, which would allow them to be fired and replaced by the president's people. So instead of civil servants, they would be reclassified, which would allow them to be able to lose their jobs in favor of people who support the America First agenda. And this was one of the main things that Trump ran on in 2016 that Trump supporters thought that they were going to get in 2017. Trump ran on draining the swamp. So I talked to someone who actually worked in the Trump for Trump's reelection campaign, and he told me that he was vaguely aware of something like this. One version of it was that I'd heard that all of the bureaucrats, everyone who worked for the federal government, was asked to give a letter of resignation right before the election. And then that letter of resignation was going to be considered. Everyone's resignation was going to be considered. And then whoever wanted – whoever Trump wanted to stay on was going to be invited to stay on during his second term. That's not exactly what Axios describes the Schedule F being, but it's very similar. 
So according to Schedule F, it would reclassify 50,000 employees as the as fireable. Now, 50,000 sounds like a lot, but there's over 2 million people who work for the federal government. I mean, if you want proof that we have way too many people working for the federal government, that the federal government has way too many bureaucrats on its payrolls, 2 million is an outrageous number. We don't need anywhere near that many people working for the government. I mean, that's uh, that's more than twice as many military personnel as we have. So this would reclassify 50,000, um, allow them to be fired. But the thing that Axios is trying to sound the alarm uh, on is it's not just that 50,000 would be fired. Obviously, they wouldn't have to fire that many. They would just start firing 1,000 here, 1,000 there, 1,000 there. And eventually, the other 45,000, 40,000 would see the writing on the wall, and they would realize that if they want to keep their jobs, they're going to have to get into line, and they're going to have to keep their mouth shut. They're going to have to stop being part of the resistance, and they're going to have to pretend like they are Team Trump. They're going to have to pretend like they've always been America first. They've always been American patriots. They're not looking to overthrow the conservative government. And by basically by putting waving this over people's heads as a threat, this would bring the bureaucracy in line. Mm-hmm. Now – the other question that, of course, liberals would ask is, okay, so where are you going to find 50,000 conservative qualified white-collar workers? Because in their minds, conservatives are just a bunch of rednecks who are working sod for a living. You know, they're just a bunch of sod busters. They're a bunch of plumbers, a bunch of electricians, a bunch of you know, dumb blue-collar workers that wouldn't know how to use a computer if their life depended on it. So the article goes into detail about how the right and how Trump's people are currently looking to crowdsource 50,000 people to work in his second administration if he runs in 2024. And they point out four different organizations. One, of course, everyone knows about is the Heritage Foundation, which yes. has grown closer to Trump world since Trump left office. So Kate Coles James was the president of Heritage when Trump left office. And um, to say the least, she was not a huge Trump fan, not anywhere near the way that their new president, Kevin Roberts, is. So Kevin Roberts has actually brought Heritage back in line with where the Republican Party's base is and not with where NRO's base is. The other organizations besides Heritage are Stephen Miller's America First Legal, which he founded in 2021. And this is basically a legal foundation that seeks to challenge the left's policies in court which is something basically like a conservative, I guess a conservative ACLU would be the best way to describe it. I was or, just going to um, say that, yeah, because the left, uh, one thing they did, of course, during the Trump administration was they just constantly sued every time he sneezed, basically, you know, uh, every policy implemented. So now Stephen Miller, who was there from beginning to end, from t- January of 2017 to January 2021, he was from the beginning, always solid on immigration, one of the top guys in the administration. So he is a good guy that can be trusted, and AF Legal does fantastic work. And I will say about Stephen Miller, one thing that separates him from most people on the right is he views the left the same way that leftists view the right. Mm-hmm. He understands this is an existential threat to our democracy, like you know, the, our actual democracy, not the democracy, the definition of it that they the have. The republic, the republic and, we have. Yeah, yeah, the republic. He understands that their their existence and their continued movement in the like their progression in the culture war is a threat to our republic and his a lot of the people who work for his foundation have actually helped ken uh ken paxton yeah he's the attorney general for in texas ken paxton has been aggressively suing the biden administration the same way that the attorney general in washington the washington state was suing the trump administration and he's become a real headache for the biden administration because it's just one right after another it's like a rapid in fact jonathan swan describes it as a blitzkrieg that ken paxton has been bringing against the biden administration so this is one aspect that this is another tool in our arsenal that we did not have before Stephen Miller created this. Another one, another organization that is seeking to crowdsource these 50,000 employees that the Trump administration will need in 2024 is Jeffrey Clark and Russ Vault Center for Renewing America. And both of these gentlemen served in the Trump administration and they were kind of, they kind of had a low profile. Russ Vault was the head of the office of budget, budget management and Jeffrey Clark worked for the justice department. And then you got Brooke Rollins's America First Policy Institute. Brooke Rollins also served in the Trump administration. Brooke Rollins was the Domestic Policy Council director in the Trump administration. And Jim DeMint's Conservative Partnership Institute. And of course, anyone who knows anything about Jim DeMint yes. knows that he always butted heads with the established the Republican establishment. He was one of he was a paleo he was a genuine paleo conservative. Yes. Like one of the few genuine paleocons before he went to run the Heritage Foundation. That's right. And 
Yeah, so he, he, whenever he left Congress, people were like, okay, I don't blame him. Like, who would want to <laughs> deal with McConnell? And, you know, at this time, this was Paul Ryan's house and everything. It was like, okay, I, I, don't, I don't blame him at all. But anyway, so – and then, of course, you have the Heritage Foundation. So it's basically it's, – uh, it's five organizations that are seeking to help Trump build – find 50,000 people to boost the – you know, to fill these positions. Another startup that is seeking to help crowdsource these uh, these future employees for the bureaucracies is a, a movement called American Moment, and it's um, it, it just recently sprung up. It's uh, they've developed a list of thousands of younger America First patriots, and uh, it's, it was founded by um, Saurabh Sharma. It's pronounced so, it's pronounced Saurabh. Saurabh Saurabh Sharma. He's a 24 year old former head of the Young Conservatives of Texas, and it's dedicated to the idea of restaffing the government. That's its it's just to simply find young people, young adults who are conservative, who agree with the nationalistic America first agenda and want to work in government. And I can look, if oh, sorry. something like this is something uh, something like this is something that paleoconservatives and American nationalists should have started during the George W. Bush years. But the reason why so many American conservatives don't do this is because they're only thinking about the next election. They're not thinking 10, 20 years down the road, down the road, because like this American moment, what they're doing if they're successful, the fruits of the success won't ser- seriously be seen until the 2030s. But they don't care because they care about, like, you know, the future. They're not just thinking right. about 2024 or 2028. And uh, if we had done this back in 2004, 2008, then in 2016, when Trump ran for president, he would have had 50,000 young people that he could draw on. But this is one of the major problems he had why yes. he wasn't able to accomplish Trump, anything. Him, Trump himself would be the first to admit, I mean, again, in a rare moment of, you know, certainly admitting that he made any mistakes in his presidency. Because, again, I don't think he made many mistakes, but the mistake he will admit that he made is that he didn't have personnel ready. He did not have a transition team ready. He didn't even really have a cabinet ready. He didn't. He was not prepared, certainly, for the scope and the scale of the deep state. He was not prepared to fire tens of thousands of bureaucrats or replace them with loyalists. He didn't have that list ready. Yeah, but see, that, that's uh, the, his lack of preparedness. He could have been better prepared, but even if he had been better prepared, sure, he could have filled the staff, his his cabinet positions with people who were loyal to him, You know, provided he could actually find someone who agreed with him on everything. I will say that on trade – the trade positions was one area where he was successful in finding yes. people who agreed with him on. And I think it's mainly because he cared about trade more than anything else. That has mm-hmm. always been his number one issue going back to the 80s. So yes. Robert Lighthizer, I don't remember the, the other guys he got to run his trade departments and his like his advisors, they were solid. They were 100% behind him, and he, they didn't have a lot of turnover in those positions. No. But the, even if he had successfully put people who were America first in the cabinet positions, the issue that the Axios article is dealing with is the mid-level bureaucrats. Even if Trump had been 100% on his game, there is no way that he would have been able to fill those mid-level bureaucratic positions with loyalists for the simple reason that there wasn't anything like an American moment years before he ran for president in 2016 to prepare tens of thousands of young Americans to fill these jobs. I personally know I, – I myself was one of them, but I, me and other people I know went to Washington, D.C. right after Trump got elected with the explicit purpose of serving in the Trump administration and working for Trump. And we went there. We sat in like you know, – we went to – sat down with people to try to give us advice about how to get into the bureaucracy, and they basically said – Look, you need to wait a couple of years because right now the bureaucracies are stonewalling anybody who tries to get in because they want to make sure that none of Trump's loyalists actually get hired because they believe that Trump is going to be a one-term president, and they want to make sure they can just ride the wave until Trump can be defeated in 2020, and then they can just go back to business as usual. So they're like, you know, you're, now you need to give it a couple of years, maybe 2018, 2019, once the bureaucracies kind of come to terms with Trump, and then you can probably get your foot in the door. But you know, part of the reason why they weren't able to fill those positions is just because there weren't the people out there to fill those positions. But if something like the American moment is successful in 2024 and 2028, you're going to have those people ready and waiting. Exactly. And I can confirm actually from personal experience uh, that I have uh, I've seen the the mission of American moment in person uh, last July, almost a year ago now, I actually had went had the chance to go cover the Intercollegiate Studies Institute's uh, conference in D.C., in Alexandria, technically, on behalf of American Greatness. So I wrote a couple of articles kind of summarizing the weekend's events, you know, the panels and whatnot, uh, the keynote speech by J.D. Vance, which was fantastic. Uh, That, of course, was before he won the nomination, won Trump's endorsement and won the nomination. And I actually did meet uh, Sorob, the founder of American Moment, and I spent some time hanging out with the uh, the 
fellows who were there. They had a fellowship, so they had the fellows, all these uh, younger kids, you know, like college age kids. And they were they were great. It was fun to talk to them. They they were young, you know. They were definitely not like you know older professionals. They were just getting started. But some of them already, I can't confirm. Not going to name names, obviously. Some of them have already moved on to much higher positions in the conservative movement that will be prime position to go into a second Trump administration if necessary. So yes, American Moment absolutely is doing really good work in building up that network. I can confirm that myself. And I wanted to kind of like touch further upon personal experience that I have. So something I mention in my bio on the website, but don't really mention too often on the show. I don't really know why. Uh, some people would mention this more than I do, but I did actually serve in the Trump administration, folks. I had the honor of serving in the Department of the Interior that was under Secretary David Bernhardt uh, late 2020, shortly before the election. My tenure was not very long, I joke that at least I lasted longer than Anthony Scaramucci, which is true. But nevertheless, I saw a lot on the inside, and there was definitely a lot that disillusioned me about government work in general on that job, despite the fact it was the Trump administration. But nevertheless, the process of my hiring, I, again, without naming names, I can tell you that this plan, Schedule F, everything that was being put into motion before the election, again, a couple months before the 2020 election. So you could argue it was too much too late, but it absolutely was happening. I eventually got connected to the possibility to work in the administration with, from an old buddy of mine, again, not naming names, who said that the PPO, the Presidential Personnel Office, which at the time was run by a fellow by the name of John McEntee, a younger guy who uh, was Trump's body man for a while, like early in the administration, they were working on a complete makeover. Uh, a total i'm talking like a total facelift just complete unrecognizable state that they were going to change the federal bureaucracy to the cabinet agencies everything the all the the mid-level bureaucrats everything that we were talking about they were going to completely overhaul it and just wipe the slate clean after the 2020 election and with a second term they were going to just fire all those people and they were going to bring in a bunch of loyalists and they were working on that and i saw other evidence of what they were doing of the plans they were making the setting in motion to decentralize the bureaucracy. This is crucial. And this is something that has been said publicly. It's a great idea. And it's the fact that they were talking about moving, permanently relocating the headquarters of the various cabinet agencies to different states across the country. Case in point, the Department of the Interior, uh, I overheard this a lot while I was working there. They were talking about the logistics of moving their headquarters and many to base many of their operations out of Colorado, not out of D.C., just a few blocks from the White House, which is where it was. So, and this is something that has been said, you move the Department of the Interior to Colorado, move the Department of Energy to Montana, send the Department of Education, if you don't abolish it, that is, to Oklahoma, you know, and by doing that, you're not only spreading the bureaucracy out across the country and, of course, very much chipping away at this festering, stinking hub of bureaucrats and lobbyists that Washington, D.C. is, it's no longer going to be this single place where everyone gathers all the power brokers all the, the the big donors what have you the professional bureaucrats looking to climb even higher up the ladder and you know crush as many skulls as they need to to get there that's not going to be concentrated in one area they have to spread out and that inherently weakens them you spread the forces out you weaken them but more importantly by relocating to other states especially of course red states like i mean colorado colorado's not exactly red but there are parts of it that are more rural by doing so you could potentially see the selection pool for new employees there to work these positions actually be filled with normal Americans, regular American citizens. You know, you send the Department of Energy to Montana, you may have people applying for those positions and getting those positions who know a, re a thing or two about real energy policy that's actually going to help, help America, you know, using the most of our oil and gas and fossil fuels to make America energy independent again like Trump did. You're going to have people who are more aligned with the administration's agenda, with the America First agenda, with President Trump naturally by virtue of where it is located rather than having it here in dc where it's like what 96 percent voted for biden in 2020 in dc it's the most democratic area in the country you know it's the yeah. place where like michael yeah. sussman was found not guilty by a jury even though he literally confessed to lying to the fbi the jury found him not guilty because like there were a couple of his friends on the jury including a woman whose daughter was on the same sports team as sussman's daughter you know again the l rule of law be damned we're going to vote to acquit him because we like him and we know this guy and there was yeah, i just want to point out that this is one of the things the reasons why it's so difficult to get conservatives to work in government because most of them just don't want to move to dc like they just don't want to live in that they don't want to deal with that so rightfully you're, so you're, you're completely correct if you moved if you split the federal government up you would start to see a lot more republicans actually want to go into civil service rather than go work for the private sector 
Exactly. And that brings me to the beauty of all of this. And this ties back to something I have said before about why Trump's 2016 campaign was so smart with the issues he picked. You hinted at it yourself earlier when you mentioned trade. Uh, I like to say the three big issues of Trump's uh, 2016 campaign was, of course, immigration, number one, trade, number two, and ending foreign wars, number three, you know, a non-interventionist policy. The beauty of those three policies is that, of course, having a Congress on your side helps, but you still very much can and are able to legally implement your agenda, the America First agenda, on those three issues without the consent of Congress. Trade, you can do that pretty much entirely with the executive branch. Again, you did he did need Congress to approve the USMCA, which he managed to make happen miraculously, but you still can do that mostly through the executive power. Uh, immigration, you, of course, again, a bill would be great to build a border wall, but we saw under Trump, especially in the last year, and we're seeing under Biden now, you know, for worse, it absolutely is possible for the executive to have more control over immigration policy without the help of the executive branch. And lastly, of course, ending foreign wars, you know, that absolutely, or simply just not getting us into another war. That is something a president can do by himself. He doesn't need Congress's approval for that. You know, the negotiating the peace deals that he did, negotiating the peaceful withdrawal from Iran, as it was supposed to happen, Trump did that. The Abraham Accords, all the peace negotiations between Israel and those Arab countries, Trump did that by himself. He can do this as well, clearing out the bureaucracy in the deep state, Schedule F. He does not need Congress to do any of this. And the article notes this. Jonathan Swan makes this clear. He does not need congressional approval. And realistically, in terms of legal recourse, there is nothing that these employees could do. If Trump were to come back in 2025 and fire all of them, you're not just going to see some judge from Hawaii or California instantly block it because they would have no legal recourse to do so. Trump would be well within his authority as the commander in chief, head of the executive branch to do this. And that is what is so brilliant about it. And it ties me to one more thing I had to mention from the article. You mentioned, Jacob, the, the gulf between the, the left, the neoliberal establishment that supports the deep state bureaucracy versus the rest of America. And there's this one line I had to talk about with uh, he talks about, you know, the the shock waves of something like Schedule F that would fire all these employees. Quote, it would effectively upend the modern civil service, triggering a shockwave across the bureaucracy. The next president might then move to gut those pro-Trump ranks and face the question of whether to replace them with his or her own loyalists, which, I mean, that's what they already do. That's what Biden did. Come on, you're not kidding yourself by pretending Biden didn't do that. Or revert to a traditional bureaucracy, which that's an oxymoron. Bureaucracies are not exactly traditional. That's not how the government's supposed to run. This is the key line. Such pendulum swings and politicization could threaten the continuity and quality of service to taxpayers, the regulatory protections, the checks on executive power, and other aspects of American democracy. Jacob, the checks on executive power, help me out here. Um, is the federal bureaucracy a fourth branch of government? Did I miss this somehow? No, it is not the fourth branch of the federal government, just like the media is not the fourth estate. Exactly. And just like I'm pretty sure the founding fathers, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, the lot of them, Franklin, Hamilton, they did not write bureaucracy in the Constitution. It is not a branch of government. It is not appointed to their office by the president like judges are. It's not elected by the people like Congress or the president is. It is a it is part of the executive branch. They serve the federal cabinet secretaries. They serve the intelligence agency directors who all answer to who? The commander in chief. So this just shows the pure pretentiousness of this freak, this deep state shill, Jonathan Swan, who dares to say unironically that it's the bureaucracy's job to check the power of the president. It's just like what that literal traitor Alexander Vindman or Sasha Vindman, his real Ukrainian birth name, you know, who gets really triggered if you call him Mr. instead of, you know, Colonel or Lieutenant Colonel, whatever his rank is. He dared to say under sworn oath, unironically, the straight face. He said, you know, I turned on Trump because Trump threatened the interagency consensus on foreign policy, as if, you know, the various agencies dictate foreign policy and not the man who was elected by tens of millions of Americans. That, that is the state of mind of these people. And that is why they see this as such a threat. They know Trump could do this. He's building the infrastructure for it. He could do it legally in office with no you know, legal repercussions whatsoever. And there's nothing they could do to stop it. Even if another Democrat comes in in 2028 after him, there still is they would spend most of that presidency cleaning up the personnel mess, kind of like Trump had to with his first term, you know, cleaning up all the Obama people, Obama holdovers. So they're terrified of this because they know this is one of the most powerful tools they have, along with social media and the mainstream media as a whole, the deep state 
does more for them than anything else. The deep state, you know, covered all the Hunter Biden scandals. The deep state played a role in the fraudulent election practices we saw in 2020. The deep state, of course, as we know, they work closely with these social media and tech companies, big tech. They are the central hub of the massive machine that the left has built for itself to crush the American people and take away their rights and implement this oligarchy that they have now that they want forever now. And that is why they put this article out there as a warning that like, hey, if Trump comes back, he can do all of this damage and more by himself. He That's, again, the beauty of this executive only agenda for the most part. Even if Republicans don't take the Senate this year, you know, because people say like, oh, Trump won't run if the Congress isn't back in Republican hands, which it makes sense if you want to pass your legislative agenda. Yes. But to do this, it could be a Democrat Senate, a Democrat House for all he cared. He could still do this without the help of Congress. Well, during the George W. Bush years, Democrats became extremely self-confident in their ability to have a create a permanent majority through the simple fact that they controlled culture, they controlled tech, they controlled – they were taken over the boardrooms of America's corporations. And so there wasn't – during the election of 2008, 2012, even at the beginning of 2016, they weren't necessarily concerned, even during Trump's uh, presidency. They weren't necessarily concerned that the right was going to be able to reshape America because – because they controlled the social media companies, and they, of course, uh, controlled Twitter and everything else. That, um, they, uh, because they still controlled the social media companies, and of course, because they controlled the bureaucracy. When you see something like this come out, you can tell they're getting extremely afraid. Like they're becoming really, really nervous because they're seeing that the right is starting to learn from its mistakes. They're seeing that the right is actually starting to shed its small government mentality that kept it really handicapped it for being able to take power and wield power. And they understand that if you have big government conservatives who are willing to come in and actually use the bureaucracies to change American civilization, American culture, Americans' lives, their day-to-day lives, that it's going to completely kneecap them. They're not going to be able to, to have to create their permanent majority. Um, and just to go back to what I was saying earlier about if you had an American moment organization back in 2004, 2006 – that started working with college, recent college grads and college students at the time, you would have had an infrastructure in place to completely take over the government and cleanse the deep state of its corruption and its, its uh, neoliberalism whenever Trump took office. So if we go back to back into the ancient year of 2011 <laughs> during the, the Republican primary leading up to the 2012 election, uh, let's let's uh. go back a moment and think about what the right was debating at the time. These were these were actual debates that the right was having. Of course, the Ron Paul movement was uh, insurgent. Mm-hmm. Ron Paul wanted to take a battle axe to the federal government and just completely uproot it. Like he wanted especially, to cleanse the deep state. Yeah, but especially his, his, the, especially the, the Federal Reserve. Ron Paul's big thing was I will literally abolish the Fed. Forget audit the Fed. I'll abolish the Fed. You know the yes, the yes. dynamic of this race. It was very. In hindsight, most of them were still establishment hacks, but the the dynamic, of course, at the time was Mitt Romney is the front runner because he's seen as the most electable. He was a runner up in 2008. You know, he, he's moderate, but he's you know, a clean, you know, elder statesman kind of demeanor. But the question is, who's going to be the anti Romney who will be more conservative? And it was just a roller coaster of one person pops up like and lasts about as long as your average meme today, and then they fade. Someone else comes up. I think at the very beginning, like Tim Pawlenty from Minnesota was kind of an original front runner. Then it was Michelle Bachman. Then mm-hmm. after Michelle Bachman, it was a fellow by the name of then governor of Texas, Rick Perry. Yes, Rick it- Perry. <laughs> so one thing that before we got before we play this clip uh, to remind a lot of you probably remember this, but the thing is like all of these people on the far the quote unquote far right, they were all trying <laughs> to outdo each other to set the standard for who was going to slash government more. Like that was the thing. It wasn't drain the swamp. It was eliminate the swamp. Like that was there. Everyone recognized the swamp was a problem, Mm -hmm. but their solution was let's just just go in and cut stuff. And that's how you produced moments like this. It's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, um, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. (sighs) EPA? EPA. There you go. No, okay. Seriously? Um, Is EPA the one you were talking about? No, sir. You can't name the third one? The third agency of government, I would would do away with the education, uh, the uh, (laughs) commerce, commerce, and let's see. I can't. The third one. Oops. Oops. There it is. There it is. Again, the, to set the context, because the video is great, he's talking to Ron Paul. He's next to Ron Paul on the debate stage. He's gesturing straight at Ron Paul, basically showing, like he said, Jacob, I'm going to out Ron Paul, Ron Paul. And then he's like, education, commerce, uh, what's the third one? And then Romney off to the side says, EPA? Like, it's a joke. And then 
it's oops. And then this clip from ABC doesn't include it. But later on, like a painfully long amount of time later, he remembers the third department. And it was the Department of Energy, which is the department he was made secretary of <laughs> under the Trump administration, which mad props to President Trump for doing that. I keep forgetting yeah, yeah. that. But it's that was the moment. Trolling him. But the Absolutely. thing is, like, Ron Paul wanted to eliminate five. Like, he wanted yeah. to go in and immediately slash five agencies. But the fact that Trump appointed him as the head of the Department of Energy just shows how Trump was so far away. This is why Trump didn't run in 2012. He knew it was just going to be it was going to be a joke because uh-huh. Trump is not a small government conservative. He wasn't looking to go in and start slashing the government. He wanted to go in and take over government because the the reality is, like it or not, most Americans like big government. That's just the sad fact. The average American wants their Medicare. They want they their like Medicare. welfare handouts they when like they need welfare. it. People mm-hmm. love welfare. Like I remember I asked my parents in 2012, whenever this election was going on, because they were, of course, they were jumping on the bandwagon. We got to slash government. We got to get rid of the government, all this government spending. So I asked them, okay, in your opinion, because they hadn't looked it up. I said, I just looked it up. So what percentage of the government do you think we spend on foreign aid? And he said, oh, at least 15%, probably 20% we're giving to foreign aid. I was like, no, no, it's less than 0.5% that we spend on foreign mm-hmm. aid. And I pointed out like the, the three main things that eat up all the federal, that eat up most of the federal budget are social security, Medicare, and the military. So do you think we should cut social security, Medicare, and the military? Like, oh, no, no, we need all those things. Okay, so you really don't want to cut government. And this is the thing that Ron Paul kept pointing out. Like nobody wants to cut anything. The American people don't want to cut anything. They like the big they, – they like having all these military bases that their kids can go get a pension on. They like their Medicare and social security. So the reality is that the right actually wants to change the culture and change the direction of the country. They, they need to completely shed this idea of cutting government and go in and take over government. Like, yes, we're still going to have a big budget. We're still going to have relatively high taxes. And, you know, we can manage inflation and we need to bring down the debt. That's true. But the reality is people like their free stuff and we've got to keep giving them their free stuff if we want their votes. And this is something that Trump instinctively understood because he works with real people. Yes. He's not. He hasn't been a bureaucrat his whole life. He hasn't been a politician his whole life. A think tank expert. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. He knows. And and this is why something was crucial to his campaign that he was criticized for is not a real conservative is he said plainly on the debate stage. Yeah, I'm not going to mess with Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security. Now I'll leave those alone. Those are fine. Those don't need to be touched. So he said, oh, he doesn't want to cut welfare. He's not a real conservative. But regular voters, the working class base in the Rust Belt heard that and was like, oh, he's not going to take away my benefits. Shoot, then Mm -hmm. I'll vote for him. Why not? And that helped him win the election. That was a big part of it. Yeah, this is why the Rust Belt showed up big for Obama in 2012, why he Obama won Ohio, which would be inconceivable mm-hmm. today, yeah. is because of Mitt Romney's 47% comment. If you remember the mm. 47% comment, he was called on a hot mic at a bunch yes. of rich Republican donors meeting saying that 47% of the country just wants to live on the dole. And then you had these working class people who had just been put out of work because their factories jobs have been shipped overseas. They're like – Okay, screw this guy. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't like Obama, but at least Obama isn't going to you know, strip me of what little crumbs I'm getting from the government. Exactly. And that's exactly why by the time all the dust settled electorally, Mitt Romney's popular vote percentage was approximately 47%. <laughs> you get what you deserve, man. As, as, a, as a great famous clown on TV once said, you get what you deserve. So. <laughs> I will say this is what I would call positive grooming. Like this is the kind of grooming <laughs> that we need to be doing. Like we need to start Oof. finding teenagers and start grooming them to drain the swamp. Oh, like, yes. Right? Like 17, 18-year-olds with a high IQ, we need to start grooming. These these organizations, oh. are they're doing the good work right now, grooming these people to drain the swamp once they're 25, 26. Context. Context is key here, guys. We are only uh, training them. I won't use that word, but we're training them to smash the deep state. We are going to train them to smash the Fed, to smash the Department of Education, to literally smash these bureaucracies into the ground. Relocate them, scatter them across the country, scatter them to the four winds, as it were. I believe those are the words that uh, President John F. Kennedy said in regards to the CIA. He allegedly wanted to disband the CIA back in the 60s. And of course, we know kind of what happened to him as a result of that, unfortunately. But yeah, scatter the bureaucracy, scatter the federal agencies, the intelligence community, and the deep state, and then smash it into a million pieces. And again, you got young people, young energetic, very idealistic individuals like being recruited by American Moment and elsewhere. And it is all but guaranteed and it will be glorious. But to wrap this up, yeah, this, I think the 
best message to take away from this certainly is the line that has been used quite a few times in recent years. Elections have consequences. And this is why 2024, I think, certainly could be the last election that matters in American history, one way or the other, no matter how it goes. That's not even me saying it's the most important election. That's me saying it's the final election. I just want to see this for no other reason than one final glorious return for Trump a second non-consecutive term, so he doesn't have to worry about the optics of re-election, what have you, and then he can just go full nuclear on the deep state. And again, he has the infrastructure in place to do this, he has the means to do it, the personnel to do it, and he has the authority to do it. And this should be one of the issues on which 2024 is ultimately decided, even more so than immigration or some of those other issues. Because at the end of the day, you know, you can ultimately, it's tough and it's messy, but you can fix immigration you know, irreconcilable like Afghanistan, but there are still things he could do on the foreign and domestic fronts. But at the end of the day, if you do not gut this deep state now, or at least give it your all to try to gut it this time, then nothing else really matters because they still have those levers of power and always will. But unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for you guys on this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media websites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to support the show, as you always do, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.